The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Stocks under pressure yet again as Treasury yields climb higher ahead of that big Fed meeting. Futures are, though, turning a little bit higher. Investor attention focused solely on Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve with its latest policy decision due at 2 p.m. Eastern Time today. In Europe, the continent's energy crisis getting even more desperate this morning as Germany nationalized, took over one of its largest utility companies. Plus, Vladimir Putin orders a partial mobilization of Russia's military as his war with Ukraine stretches into its seventh month. And then later on, Diamond, Frazier, Moynihan, and others heading to Capitol Hill today as the leaders of the country's biggest banks prepare for two days' worth of testimony. It's Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today. Let's kick off your Wednesday morning with a look at U.S. equity futures after a mostly lower session for stocks in yesterday's trade. Right now, futures are pointing to some modest gains. The S&P 500 implied higher by roughly five points, the Dow Jones by 36, and the Nasdaq by 10. So this is very much a wait-and-see market. Checking now on the bond side of things and yields, two years and five-year yields, the highest since 27. The 10-year, by the way, the highest since 2011. The 30-year long bond, the highest since 2014. Right now, each of those on the two-year side, slightly lower at 3.94%, the 10-year at 3.53%, and the 30-year long bond at 3.54%. So again, a little bit of movement, but everybody's waiting for the Fed. On the energy side of things, oil prices are sharply higher in trading today. You can see one-and-a-half-point gains here, $85.41 for U.S. Benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI crude. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, up one and a half dollars as well, $92.18, roughly the same percentage move higher. So we'll watch those energy markets ahead of that Fed. And in crypto, we are seeing those prices for Bitcoin and Ether. Bitcoin, by the way, still below that 20,000 mark, 18,879 at this point, down three quarters of one percent, $1,329 and change, down one and three quarters percent for Ether prices as well. Around the world, A mostly lower session in Asia overnight, as you can see there, roughly one and a half point losses, percentage point losses for the Nikkei in Japan. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong off about one and three quarters percent and just about two tenths of a percent decline for the Shanghai Composite. Now, in Europe, the trading day is also underway right now. Let's spin that globe to the other side. A mixed picture, as you can see there, the continent red, the CAC in France just about flat on the session, the FTSE 100 in the U.K., up about one half of one percent, the German DAX down two tenths of one percent. Let's get a check on uh, some of these top corporate stories this morning. And for that, we turn to Silvana Hanau. Silvana. 
Tom, good Wednesday morning. U.S. lawmakers are calling on the White House to put Chinese chip maker Yangtze Memory Technologies on a blacklist for allegedly violating export controls and supplying handset maker Huawei with components. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer calls Yangtze's reported actions troubling and says the Biden administration needs to act swiftly. Crypto exchanges Binance and FTX are reportedly the top bidders for assets of now bankrupt crypto lender Voyager Digital. The current bid from Binance, according to reports, stands at about $50 million. That's slightly higher than rival FTX. When it filed for bankruptcy protection back in July, Voyager said it had $5 billion in total assets and liabilities of $4.9 billion. And Elon Musk is looking to bring wireless Internet to Iran. In a tweet, Musk says his company is now working with the Treasury Department on the necessary permissions. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the administration in the past has provided various exemptions for Iran's people and their ability to communicate with the rest of the world. Um. Savannah Hanal, thank you very much for those. A developing story this morning in a rare national address and his first since the start of the war in Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin announcing a partial mobilization of his country's military this morning, calling up reservists in what is seen as a significant escalation of his offensive in Ukraine after a series of military setbacks, especially in the eastern regions. In calling for Russia's first mobilization, by the way, since World War II, Putin says if the West continues its, quote, nuclear blackmail, Moscow would respond with the might of its vast arsenal. We've got much more on that story as it develops. Well, back to the markets. Investors are counting down to today's Federal Reserve decision and comments by Fed Chair Jay Powell at 2.30 p.m. Eastern time today. Ahead of that, September is living up to its reputation of underwhelming returns. So far this month, the Dow and the S&P 500 are both down about two and a half percent, while the Nasdaq has declined by roughly three and a quarter percent. Let's now bring in Craig Johnson, chief market technician at Piper Sandler. Uh, Craig, uh, the, the markets are down. The charts show it. But is there any relief in sight? Is there any stability yet? Or are we all just waiting for catalysts like the Fed and its rate decision? Dom, the, the negativity out here in markets right now is something that I have not uh, seen or felt in years at this point in time. Everything is uh, what what is going to go wrong. I'm hearing a very little about what is going to go right. And when you come back and you just sort of look at the charts and step back and unemotionally look at it, you haven't seen a break below the June lows. And if we're going to get a big drop below the June lows, it's going to have to be a lot more hawkish and a lot more negativity. Uh, and something else new is going to have to come in down to really push these markets a lot lower from, from our perspective. And I would just note from that sentiment, if I go back and I look at the AAII data, it's the second longest uh, negative streak in terms of the AAI data going all the way back to 1987. And when you look at very simple returns from here forward, the odds and probabilities suggest that the market can go higher but again, most investors don't want to hear it and don't want to see it. And the charts, uh, are, to me, look pretty ugly, but they're starting to kind of start to go sideways at this point in time down. You know, I, I, hate, I hate doing this because, because people have been proven so wrong over the years by saying these exact words. But isn't this time different, Craig? Right. Because this time is different because we are embarking on the recovery from pandemic and even financial crisis era financial policies, monetary policies that have been unprecedented in U.S. economic government history. 
unprecedented means there is no historical comparison to it. So is this time different? I'm not sure that this time is going to be per se different, Don, because when I go back and I look at stocks have already been declining. If you look at the growth sector stocks, they've been declining since uh, basically February of 2021. You've got a lot of stocks that are already anywhere between 50 and, well, frankly, 80 percent off of their prior highs. Again, a good friend of mine would always say one doesn't get hurt falling out of basement windows. And uh, when you look at where a lot of these stocks are already trading, what is it that we don't really know? I get it. It's unprecedented at this point in time for a lot of these pieces. But again, sentiment is super bad and stocks are really beat up at this point in time. And when I go through and I start looking at bond markets and I look at credit spreads and I look at a lot of other indicators, those look like tops. They don't look like they're starting to go higher. And so if we're not seeing a huge expansion in, say, high yield or investment grade or some of these other pieces, um, then I don't think we have a, you know, a great financial crisis or something along those lines in front of us at this point in time. The things in the escalation in Europe is troubling, but Again, the energy stocks are still a place to hide at this point in time. You know, it's interesting, Craig, a a former boss of mine in in my Wall Street days used to say to me, there is only one end of the world and this is not it. So if this is, in fact, not the end of the world and the markets are not headed towards Armageddon and that this country is not doomed to, to, to be fated towards a fiery pit of inflation, there has to be places there have to be places out there that are that are looking attractive. I, I wonder what the charts say those places are. Well, Dom, from our work and our relative strength work and our total return work uh, and absolute trend work, I will tell you that energy still remains an overweight for us. And if we look at stocks in here, such as uh, ConocoPhillips, it looks like to us uh, this is a very constructive chart about ready to break out the new highs. I'd also just mention in consumer land, there is still consumer spending. Go around to the malls, go to Target right next door, and you'll clearly see that spending is happening. Look at stocks like Alta Beauty. They've been consolidating for a multiple years, uh, excuse me, multiple months, and they're finally breaking topside in here and showing good relative strength. But then on the flip side, Dom, if we go back and we look at some of the household cleaners and some of the staples areas, parts of the market, they're starting to sell off. So if the world is going to be super negative, end of world, um, I wouldn't expect the staples to be selling off and looking weaker. I would expect them to be stronger. And I'm seeing investors perhaps taking some profits in those parts of the market and starting to play a little bit more offense than defense, just just at the margin, not at a measured pace, too. All right. Craig Johnson with the latest on the charts there. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. When we come back on the show, Germany taking extreme measures to shore up its energy supplies ahead of what is expected to be a very rough winter ahead. Plus, Diamond, Frazier, Moynihan and Co. are heading to Capitol Hill today as leaders of the country's biggest banks prepare for two days worth of testimony. We'll preview what, have to, what they have to say ahead. And Worldwide Exchange is back after this commercial break. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. 
What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Germany says it will nationalize one of its largest utility companies, Uniper, as the country looks to deal with the ongoing energy crisis ahead of what is expected to be a very rough winter ahead for consumers. This as European natural gas bounces off some recent lows in prices, now though back at its highest level since mid-September and up nearly 180 percent, as you can see in the chart so far this year. For more, let's send it out to Arabile Goumede in our London newsroom. Uh, uh, Uniper, this is a big deal when a country, in essence, takes over and nationalizes a private company. T- can you take us through what's happening right now? Yeah, good morning, Dom. Certainly a big move, right? Germany announcing that it will nationalize Uniper, buying Fortum's majority stake for around half a billion euros. In a statement, the Finnish company did say that Uniper's situation had deteriorated since a previous stabilization package was agreed, and that was back in July. And it does mean that new measures had to be agreed upon. The federal government will now own 99% of the utility, giving it a stabilization package of around 8 billion euros, which then excludes the shareholder subscription rights. At the same time, the state-owned bank, uh, development bank there, KFIA, will provide financing to Unipa according to its liquidity needs. So certainly a big story and one that kind of shapes the energy discussion, particularly for Germany, who of course have relied heavily uh, on Russia for gas imports. Uh, desperate times call for desperate measures, Arabile. Uh, amid this Uniper news in Germany, across the English Channel in the United Kingdom, the British government is also unveiling a multi-billion dollar bailout, if you will, to help companies with their energy bills this winter. They're going to put caps on prices. Companies that are exempt from those utility bill caps meant for consumers here. What exactly is that going to do to shape the energy picture in the coming weeks and months? Yeah, well, it does mean that suppliers are, of course, going to have to or need to be compensated somewhat for the price uh, sort of staying that low. They are going to put these caps on the prices at around $240 per megawatt per hour. Um, that is for electricity. Gas will then uh, be capped at $85 per, mega, uh, per megawatt per hour uh, then as well. So those caps are going to be set in place and they follow on then from the consumer caps that were put in place uh, by the new UK Prime Minister Liz Truss not so long ago. A clear statement of intent from her to kind of ease the burden as much as possible, uh, kind of a sense then that things are getting a little bit difficult on that front and trying to find the best way possible to kind of alleviate the pressure and ensure that the situation does not escalate further. Dom. Arabile Goumede in London with the latest there on the Uniper takeover by the German government. Thank you very much. Still on deck for the show here, gearing up for the Federal Reserve's 2 p.m. policy decision and why and why what Powell might say is likely bad news for stocks and other risk-related assets. Plus, be sure to tune in to the premiere of Jay Leno's Garage with a special guest, Elon Musk. Yes, Elon Musk with Jay Leno in his garage. The all-new season kicks off tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern time. You can watch it right here only on CNBC. Have you 
ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's dive into the market action here and start now with interest rates. We know they've been on the rise. The 10-year Treasury note yield now at its highest levels in more than a decade. Meanwhile, the difference between long-term and short-term rates continues to kind of collapse. And I'm showing you a year chart of the difference between 10-year Treasury note yields and 10-year note yields. You can see here it's negative. Long-term yields are, again, just below those short-term ones. And you can see by about 41 basis points or four-tenths of 1% to the downside here. This has been one of those recession indicators in the past that some experts have looked at, and it continues to show that maybe there is, we're due at least for an economic downturn. Next up, if interest rates are on the rise and we have a fear of a recession coming up, what are those technology stocks going to do? Over the course of the last decade plus, they've been a relative safe haven for many investors. Not so these days. However, over the course of the last week, Despite the fact that interest rates have been on the rise, check out what's been happening with Apple shares, up about three quarters of one percent. Also, Tesla stock up about one and a quarter percent. Microsoft may be bucking the trend a bit there, down about nearly four percent. But if there is some sign of stability with mega cap technology oriented stocks, could that mean that a possible bottom is in sight? That's one dynamic that traders are paying attention to. And then take a look now at consumer staple stocks and energy two economically sensitive type sectors that are on opposite ends of that spectrum. Consumer staples over the course of this year-to-date period is down about 7.5%. Meanwhile, energy, we know the spike in prices has been in play for most of the year, despite the recent weakness that we've seen. And technology has lost one quarter of 1% there. But consumer staples continue to be an outperformer. But as you heard earlier in the show, Craig Johnson at Piper Sandler says he's starting to see a bit of a downturn in some of these names in consumer staples. So what's that economic narrative weaving into this discussion with consumer staples underperforming. Something to watch. Well, let us get a check on this morning's other headlines outside of the world of business. NBC's Philip Mena is in New York with the latest here. Hi, Philip. Hey, Dom. Good morning. Hurricane Fiona is slowly moving toward Bermuda, strengthening to a Category 4 storm after slamming Turks and Caicos. The Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico are still reeling after Fiona barreled through there earlier this week. The special master overseeing the Mar-a-Lago probe held his first meeting with lawyers for Donald Trump and the DOJ. During the hearing, the federal judge appointed to review the documents seized by the FBI appeared skeptical about Mr. Trump's claim that he had declassified them. Attorneys for Mr. Trump have argued that they didn't want to disclose the information yet because it could be part of an eventual defense. The judge says unless Mr. Trump's lawyers can show that those 100 sensitive documents are not classified, He will treat them like they are. He told the Trump team, quote, you can have your cake and eat it. In a separate filing, Mr. Trump's lawyers have called this case a document storage dispute that spiraled out of control. All right. What do Aaron Judge and Babe Ruth now have in common? Three infielders on the left side for Judge. And here's the 3-1. Drill deep to left field. There it goes. Number 60. Slide over, Babe. You've got some company. 
Yeah, with that ninth inning blast, Aaron Judge became just the sixth player in Major League Baseball history to hit 60 home runs in a season. He's the third Yankee to reach that mark, and he now sits just one home run behind Roger Maris's American League record. Judge also leads all categories in the AL Triple Crown on top of all that. So, Dom, the Yankees, they still have 15 games left for Judge to break that record. Yes, it's only September right now. All rise for Aaron Judge. Thank you very much, Philip Mena. We appreciate it. You got it. Well, he's still ahead on the show. RBC Capital Markets' Halima Croft is here, weighing in on Vladimir Putin's new threats to the West and first military mobilization since World War II. By the way, take a look at shares of defense companies here in the U.S. following Putin's remarks, all getting a pop. Lockheed Martin up 3%, Northrop Grumman up 2%, Boeing, Raytheon, L3 Harris getting a bid in an otherwise quiet market. Keep an eye on those defense stocks, which do tend to do better when there's geopolitical conflict. And a reminder, be sure to sign up for the most powerful investment event of the year. We're talking CNBC's Delivering Alpha. It returns to New York City in person on September 28th. Just go over to DeliveringAlpha.com to register a slew of huge names. And I'll actually be part of that program moderating a panel on what the next big short could be with Carson Block at Muddy Waters and Jim Chanos as well. So an interesting lineup for sure. DeliveringAlpha.com. We'll be right back. Pressure on stocks poised to continue as Treasury yields continue to climb to fresh cycle highs. Futures in a holding pattern, as you can see right now. All of this as investors gear up for the Federal Reserve's latest policy decision and expectations of another big rate hike. But just how aggressive will the central bank go to take a bite out of inflation? And the heads of some of America's biggest banks in the hot seat today on Capitol Hill, kicking off two days worth of getting grilled by lawmakers. It's Wednesday, September 21st. You're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan. It's right around 528, 27 a.m. Eastern time right here in New York, in the New York area. Right now, futures are pointing to a modest and flat and stable opening bell. 38 points implied higher for the Dow. Three points, just three points for the S&P and down four points for the Nasdaq overall. Very much a wait and see mode situation for markets ahead of today's big policy decision from the Fed and the press conference from Fed Chair Jay Powell. In the bond market, obviously a very big focus with interest rates in the picture and in the cards today. The 10-year note yields slightly, just ever so slightly lower, 3.54% right now. The two-year note yield just a little below 3.95%, and the 30-year long bond just a hair below 3.55%. So keep an eye on those rates. Let's get a check on this morning's top stories. Silvana Hinao is back with those. Silvana. Hey, Dom. Well, the heads of seven of the largest banks in the U.S. are set to face tough questions from lawmakers when they go before Congress today. CEOs including J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon, Citigroup's Jane Fraser, Bank of America's Brian Moynihan and Wells Fargo's Charles Scharf will testify the House, uh, to the House Financial Services Committee. Dimon will warn Congress of economic storm clouds. That's according to testimony released ahead of the hearing, including high inflation, supply chain disruptions and declining consumer confidence. Fraser, meanwhile, is expected to deliver a similar message to Diamond, saying current economic challenges are no less daunting than during the pandemic, but that her bank can continue to serve as a source of stability. 
Beyond Meat formally suspending its chief operation, chief operating officer, Doug Ramsey, after his arrest for allegedly punching a man and biting his nose. The company says its senior vice president of manufacturing operations will step into the role in the meantime. Ramsey's arrest is just the latest headache for Beyond Meat as it grapples with Operation Headwinds and the price of its stock sinking. And Home Depot becoming the latest major company to face the growing unionization wave among workers. Nearly 300 employees based in Philadelphia have filed a petition to unionize. The move would include merchandising, specialty and operations associates. Back in 2019, 60 Home Depot drivers voted to join a union in San Diego, Dom. All right, Silvana Hanau, thank you very much for those headlines. To our top story and investors gearing up for Fed Chair Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve's latest policy decision, 2 p.m. Eastern time today, so about eight and a half hours from now, as you can see with that countdown clock. Broad consensus ahead of the actual decision of a 75 basis point hike or three quarters of one percent. That you can see there in 84 percent odds, according to the futures markets right now, of that 75 basis point hike. And as we await Chairman Jay Powell checking yields, of course, the two year and the five year at the highest levels hovering near there since 27 and then the 10 year at the highest since 2011, the 30 year, by the way, the highest level since 2014. Joining me now is TD Securities Global Head of Interest Rate Strategy, Priya Misra. Also with me right now, Wells Fargo Senior Economist, Sarah House. Uh, Ladies, thank you very much for joining us here. Sarah, maybe we'll start with the broad picture with you. The economy right now. Is it justified to see interest rates where they are, given the current and expected state of the American economy? Yeah, so I think we still have some work to do with where rates are, given that we still have quite a few inflation pressures out there. But we are beginning to see the toll that a tougher stance in terms of rates and policy are beginning to take on on the economy. So we certainly see it in the housing sector. We're beginning to see it in manufacturing. But I think we're still looking at a pretty resilient consumer right now. And I think overall, when you look at the inflation pressures in the system, there is still more work to do. You know, Priya, markets have been fairly, and I say that maybe perhaps with the benefit of hindsight, but the Fed has been very clear kind of since earlier this year that with inflation being a problem, it was going to look to take cash out of the financial system, raise interest rates, start to look at ways to do that. They, they, they're more, perhaps not desperate's the wrong word, they're more forceful about it because of the data now. Are the markets pricing it correctly in your mind? I think the front end of the yield curve is pricing it uh, correctly. You know, it's a single mandate central bank, I would argue right now. Inflation is high, it's sticky, and the Fed I think they lost some inflation credibility, so they're sounding like all they care about is inflation. So I think the front end of the yield curve, two-year rates, five-year rates, I think that's well-priced. I do struggle with the long end because I think the idea of a soft landing, I mean, the Fed's giving up on it. We went from soft to softish to some pain. So I do think that long-end interest rates are attractive now. I think the market should be pricing in. The risk of a hard landing is high. I think the Fed can't respond preemptively, even if the economy starts to slow down. They care about inflation that we think is going to it's going to take a while for inflation to get closer to two percent. So I actually think that the long end is a little too optimistic about the, um, the, the Fed's ability to engineer this soft landing. I think some of those long end interest rates have risen too much. It's actually an attractive point for investors who may want to hedge some of their risk assets 
I think the the ten year in our view has peaked at uh, at around three and a half percent. Oh, okay. So, so you read my mind. I was just going to ask you where you think they could top out. But if you're saying three and a half percent for the ten year right now, that implies this is a buy because if you buy them, prices go up, yields come down. In your mind, I mean, if this is a scenario where the global picture becomes more recessionary in the coming months, how low could ten-year rates go? In a scenario where there is a hypothetical, again, hypothetical, I don't know the future, Priya, hard landing for the U.S. economy, how low could 10-year yields get? Sure. So I think, you know, a year out, we're actually forecasting 2% 10-year. In the near term, it's a little hard. If the Fed is taking rates up to 4.5, in our view, terminal rate, it's a little hard for the 10-year to fall a lot more. But you know, we think 275 to three is where it should be in the near term. The market prices in the Fed getting to four and a half and then cuts by the end of next year. I mean, I know the Fed's saying they want to stay higher for longer, but there is an economic response that the hikes are going to create. There's a lagged effect. Well, now, you know, uh, Sarah talked about how the economy is resilient. Six months from now, I think the economy starts to slow down. We're already seeing it in interest sensitive sectors. So we see all the cuts happening next year. So that flaws, you know, if the Fed is keeping rates high, there's only that inverted the curve can get. But, you know, I would say getting closer to 3% is where we're forecasting the 10-year in the next few months and then heading lower because I don't see how the Fed can only cut a few hundred, you know, a few basis points. I think they're going to they're going to have to cut to below accommodative policy. We're thinking that they cut closer to 2% in 2024. And that's not something the dot plot will will address. So I don't know if the 10-year declines a lot today because I don't think the Fed is going to sound dovish. But as the economy slows down, I think that's where the opportunity is for that 10-year to get closer to two and a half, 275 is where we, we forecast in the near term. You know, Sarah, it's interesting because Priya brings up the dot plot, the kind of statement of financial projections that the Fed puts out on a quarterly basis. They're looking, they're trying to forecast, they're trying to predict where the economy is going to be. Right now, there's been a big, date in America, uh, a big debate in America Sarah, about whether or not this country is right now in a recession, technical or otherwise. It sure feels like one to many Americans out there. What does the data tell you right now about whether or not this country is in a recession or not, or whether we're due for one, and what data points matter the most? So I think in terms of whether we're currently in a recession or not, I would say that we are not at present. So yes, we've had, of course, two quarters of declining GDP. But when you look at what's happening with gross domestic income, essentially just another way of measuring total activity in the economy. So that's continued to grow. We're still adding jobs at a robust pace. So you have hundreds of thousands of workers gaining income each month. So I think not there yet. But when we look ahead, we are expecting the U.S. economy to enter a recession sometime around the early part of next year, as you do see the the tightening we've seen from the Fed to date begin to bite. Again, we're already seeing it in the housing sector. We're seeing it in other leading sectors like manufacturing. We've had the LEI decline for, for six consecutive months. And so I think we are seeing the economy run out of steam. The problem is inflation isn't running out of steam just yet. And so I think that keeps the Fed on this hawkish bent for, uh, for not only today's meeting, but probably through the end of this year. And Sarah, before we let you go, we just got a few moments left here. What's the one data point that would point us towards a possible recession? 
Well, I think when we look at just the unemployment rate, so we saw it tick up over over August. That was in part from labor force participation. But if we see that begin to climb higher, so there's a pretty um, pretty firm rule in economics, the SOM rule, about if you do see that unemployment rate move higher, it's it's pretty clear that we are in, in a recession. So I'll be watching that very closely in the coming months. And Priya, last word to you very briefly here. What's the key data point for you to watch in the economy? I'm watching the consumer. You know, the consumer is dealing with negative real rate, um, real, um, um, you know, rate of growth of wages because wages are growing at 5.7. Inflation is at nine. At what point do the savings run out that the high frequency indicators of the consumer spending start to slow down? Then that will start to impact the labor market. I just wonder if the labor market is a lagging indicator. So I'm watching the consumer to see if the consumer is rolling over. All right. Priya Misra, Sarah House, thank you both very much for your thoughts. We appreciate it. To a developing story this morning, oil prices are sharply higher. This after a rare national address and his first since the start of the war in Ukraine. We're talking Russian President Vladimir Putin announcing a partial mobilization of his country's military this morning, calling up reservists in what is seen as a significant escalation of his offensive in Ukraine after what is being seen as a series of military setbacks, especially in the eastern regions. Now, in calling for Russia's first military mobilization since World War II, Putin says if the West continues its, quote, nuclear blackmail, that Moscow would respond with the might of its vast arsenal. Read into that what you will. Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline is RBC Capital Markets' Halima Croft. She global, she's the global head of commodity strategy She's also a former CIA analyst. So, Halima, let's talk about whether or not Putin is implying what we think he is by saying vast arsenal at their disposal. I mean, Dominic, obviously, the grave concern is he's threatening a tactical nuclear strike. I mean, it's a sort of Chekhov's gun scenario where you basically put the gun on the table in Act 1. Is it going to be used in Act 3? That has always been the concern about this conflict that Vladimir Putin is essentially stake his entire reputation on a success in Ukraine. And this military setbacks that he's experienced in the Northeast potentially makes him, you know, very prone to a very dangerous escalation. So obviously the partial mobilization, 300,000 additional troops being put into this theater will be very, very concerning to the West. But also that threat of a potential nuclear strike also will cause people a lot of anxiety this morning. What's interesting, though, Halima, you know, you and I were both watching and I think we were together at one point in February, March, when we were watching the various market reactions to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We saw a lot more volatility, not just in the stock market, but commodity markets as well, given that first push and invasion by Russia. Now we've got the biggest kind of military buildup and calling up reservists that we've seen since World War II. Why aren't the markets more skittish about this? Well, again, this news just broke, and I think it'll take time for people to process what this exactly means. I think market participants have grown a little tired of this conflict. They see it as a frozen conflict. I think a lot of market participants are also thinking about when we can get on the other side of this. But the concern has always been for people who follow Russia very closely is that Putin may have nowhere to go with a military loss in Ukraine. So the prospect of a serious escalation has always been on the table. So again, I think it's going to be very important to watch 
the reactions that we have from Western leaders who are gathered in New York for the opening of the U.N. General Assembly. But this is obviously a very, very concerning development. This is a, a balancing act right now, if you will. I mean, it, I wouldn't say balancing act. It, it's a scale, right? A left hand and a right hand side. And it seems as though the markets and the economy, not here, especially in the Europe right now, especially in Europe, are trying to figure out which has the bigger influence, this military geopolitical conflict or this slowing economic narrative building everywhere else. So what wins out and how do commodity prices respond in the next, say, six to 12 months? I mean, Dominic, I see these stories for Europe as essentially the same story. I mean, what is a key driver of the economic slowdown in Europe has been the weaponization of Russia's commodity exports, principally natural gas. I mean, look at the news this morning. Germany is taking basically the full stake in the utility company Uniper. $8 billion are having to lay out to acquire that asset. These European governments are going to be on the hook for massive economic bailouts to prevent consumers from having to feel the full effect of rising utility prices. We are going to see, we already are seeing, industrial curtailments in gas-intensive industries, fertilizer, steel, aluminum. We are not even at winter yet to expect this economic crisis to get worse, and it is largely driven, in the case of Europe, by this war. All right. Halima Croft at RBC Capital Markets with the latest on Russia and Ukraine. Thank you very much. Coming up on the show, your morning RBI and the case by Fundstrat's Tom Lee that continued red-hot inflation may be good news for stocks. Sounds perverse, but we'll hear why after this. We'll watch exchanges back in a moment. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Now it's time for something random but interesting. And for that, we send it out to our own Brian Sullivan for RBI. Hi, everybody. It is time once again for your morning RBI. And today, let's get random but interesting about stock markets and maybe a little bit of optimism because there seems to be so much negativity out there that it's easy to get a little depressed about the market, which we totally get. With inflation running still hot and the Fed jacking up rates, it is a nervous time. And even if the next couple of inflation reports show a slight downturn in the CPI or PPI, you don't need to be an economist to know that prices pretty much remain high for everything. Just go to the grocery store. But remember this, the economy and the stock market are not the same thing. One can go one way, the other the other way. Happens all the time. And Tom Lee says the latest inflation data could actually be good news for equities. Sounds weird, I know. But he's got some history he's looking at that when you look at it, Kind of makes a lot of sense because the data says that red hot CPI numbers tend to tank stock markets. And when it comes to big stock drops after high inflation numbers, two of the top 10 occurred this year. Two more were all the way back in 1974. But here's the key. Tom also notes that these have also coincided with some near term market lows. Look at this. In those 10 hot CPI releases, you can see that stocks did get slammed. They fell for pretty much a week. Almost every time, with the average drop around 7 or 8%. It's kind of what's happening now. About half the time, they were also lower about a month later. But then something changes. Stocks have historically turned around in a few months. In the 10 worst stock drops, after a red-hot inflation number, the S&P 500 was higher seven times after half a year. Only one time was it confirmed lower in six months. And that was in 2002. The other two times, well, they're still being yet to be determined because they happened this year and we haven't gone six months from them. 
though they are certainly tracking to be lower, at least for now. But it's early. But let's say we are lower, even six months from now in this year's inflation data. It would still mean that the S&P 500 was higher seven of ten times the CPI came in hot, 70 percent. Not a bad average when it comes to the markets. And better yet, the median gain of those seven times has been nearly 18 percent. Okay, a lot of numbers there. Let's recap. Make it simple. Tom Lee in Fundstrat's data when it comes to inflation running hot says stock markets tend to sell off in a big way shortly after. But a few months later, the market tends to be higher, often by a lot, probably because investors think the Fed will soon be done raising rates. And does this mean we're going to be higher a few months from now? Of course not. History is a suggestion, not a guarantee. But if you're looking for something to be optimistic about, there you go. History may just be on your side. Random and hopefully interesting. All right, Brian Sullivan, thanks for the morning RBI today on deck for the show here. Investors are gearing up for that big Fed rate decision. Patrick Frizzetti lays out the moves to make with your money on the heels of that in a very busy trading day ahead. And throughout the Hispanic Heritage Month we're celebrating right now, CNBC is celebrating our own teammates and contributors. So as we head to break, here is CNBC producer A.J. Biel. I was born and raised along the border in the Texas Rio Grande Valley, and I'm blessed to come from a loving, working-class Mexican-American family. Growing up as the second of six kids meant there was always someone to lean on when times got tough, no matter how far away we went for college or for work. One of my sisters told me there's beauty in the struggle, and it's not always easy, but our challenges shape us. It's important to remember where you come from, because no matter where you go or who you meet, you represent your people and your culture wherever you go. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange, a very busy trading day ahead. So here's a look at what to expect. At 10 a.m. Eastern time, we get existing home sales figures. We're also watching earnings from General Mills and Lennar and KB Homes. It's also a very busy day in Washington, D.C. Several bank CEOs are testifying before the House Financial Services Committee this morning. And then at 2 p.m. Eastern time, we get the main event, the highly anticipated Fed interest rate decision CNBC will, of course, have complete coverage of all the things that you need to pay attention to throughout the course of today. So keep it right here on CNBC. Well, ahead of that latest policy decision from the Fed, futures right now are pointing to some stability, at least. Maybe not expected. The Dow is implied higher by now about 110 points. So seeing a little bit of positivity pick up, the S&P is implied higher by 13 and the Nasdaq by 27. Your next guest says when it comes to strategy, the central bank is using demand side tools to fight what are really supply-side problems. Patrick Frizzetti is partner and managing director at Rose Advisors at Hightower. Uh, Patrick, supply, demand, Econ 101, take us through what your thesis is for what the central bank is doing right and or wrong. Well, look, at the end of the day, the Fed is trying to fight a problem where you have had global supply chain issues for the last two years, and they can reduce their the size of their balance sheet. They can intre- increase interest rates. You know, this hotter CPI print in August, um, you know, has caused them to speculate, are we going to get a 100 BIP increase today or 75 BIP? I think they'd lose some credibility if they went 100 basis points. But at the end of the day, you know, the Fed... Um, in, in, in many ways, um, has only so much they can do, right? This isn't the Fed of the early 1980s. Powell cannot 
act like Paul Volcker, you know, mainly because we have too much debt. You know, when you look at the debt to GDP in the early 80s, it was roughly 30 percent. And when you look at it today, it's over 120 percent. Um, so they're going to have a very difficult time, I think, to sort of curb the inflationary pressures. They'll do what they can. But I think at the end of the day, you know, you look at core CPI and the non-energy components are still remain pretty robust um, from an infl- inflationary perspective. So so if in that scenario that you've just laid out, there's got to be some kind of a, a compromise or happy medium, maybe is the best way to put it, with what right. the Fed can and can't do in this scenario. You have right. to fight inflation, but you at the same time don't want to send the economy into a recession. Or is it more important to get inflation down so you'll give up this idea of a soft landing for the economy? Well, I, I think it's, uh, again, it's, it's a very difficult balancing act, right? I mean, they're looking at different signals, right? So every day, you know, I'm a fundamental investor. You know, on any given day, you know, we look at signal, signals that companies provide, uh, you know, over the past few weeks, we had FedEx report. And on that day, the expectation was, wow, the global economy is really, you know, is really tanking because of how, the way FedEx reported. Although, you know, many of those issues were company specific, then you turn to this railroad strike um, that was averted. Um, now that is probably positive to the economy because you know it didn't you know it didn't freeze the transportation system, but labor costs are now going up 24 percent over the next three years based on this temporary deal. It looks like they they've resolved. Um, so these are the kind of issues that the Fed has to face. Um, it is a balancing act. I think you know they're. They're doing their best to avoid a hard landing. I think that's going to be a challenge. They keep increasing interest rates. Um, but, you know, with, it, with this you know, ensuing debt problem, it is, is going to be more difficult. And Powell will continue to talk down inflation for the foreseeable future. So, Patrick, th- this sounds not to be a market cliche about this, but it sounds like you are, quote unquote, cautiously optimistic about what's happening. So given that outlook, as I'm reading Fair it, enough. what exactly is the play then? What's the best place to put your money into given the idea that, yes, you are a little scared, but you're still optimistic, more medium to long term. Yeah, sure. So I would I would say this. We came into the year, I'd say, you know, fairly defensively positioned, um, owning health care, defensive consumer stocks, certainly some energy and precious metals. Um, and when I look at things like, you know, deglobalization factors, you know, in the in the global economy, I say, who's going to benefit? Well, I think, you know, a country like Mexico is going to benefit. And I just mentioned railroads. Well, Canadian Pacific bought Kansas City Southern. They're now going to own most of their rail lines from Mexico all the way up to Canada. Um, and I would say from a from a growth perspective and defensive perspective, I like owning real assets. So owning a company like Canadian Pacific, I think is very reasonable. They traded a, a, a pretty reasonable valuation given, you know, some of the, the headwinds that the economy faces. Um, and they don't have the same, you know, potential labor issues that the U.S. rail space right now. All right. Canadian Pacific, the call from Patrick Frizzetti. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Futures right now have seen a little bit of positivity. The Dow is now implied higher by roughly 100 points. The S&P by about 11, 10, 11 points. And the Nasdaq by 17 Big Fed rate decision coming up, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Keep it right here on CNBC. Squawk Box is coming up next. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.